The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. So it's already been mentioned uh, earlier this morning that this is a holiday weekend, specifically Memorial Day. This is the weekend where we remember those who have courageously given their lives Uh, in order to fight for freedom. And uh, it really is hard to uh, think of a more appropriate passage uh, along those lines than the one that we just had read to us about one who has fought uh, for the freedom of others. And uh, I'd like to start uh, this morning with with a a little bit of a glimpse into uh, our family dinner table. Sometimes uh, the family will be talking and chatting it up about this or that, and I will put a question out there. Uh, How was your day, so-and-so? And And -and so-and-so will look at me with a blank stare, and then uh, everybody else will look at me with a blank stare, and somebody will say, well, she just finished telling us how her day was. Uh, The point being that one of my character flaws every now and then, is that I'm always fully present somewhere else. There's this new word going around, uh, books uh, with titles based on this word, articles written, and the word is mindfulness. Mindfulness is defined this way. It's the quality or state of being conscious or aware of something, a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment. Did you know that the Bible is filled with encouragements toward mindfulness? Isaiah chapter 55, a very famous passage, talks about the thoughts of God. And it says that the thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts, which means that wise people will surrender their thoughts in whatever ways that their thoughts are incongruent with the thoughts of God and replace them with the thoughts of God. 
The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, be transformed. How? The gateway to transformation is this, through the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here in Philippians, he's saying similar things. He's saying, be of the same mind with each other. It says in verse 2, and then in verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so, this is an encouragement to think, to use our noggins, to, to think and to think carefully and truthfully. It's an encouragement to be mindful, to always be in the moment, and specifically to be mindful of three specific realities. Be mindful always of your humble place. Be mindful always of Christ's sometimes hidden power. And be mindful always of your exalted place because of Christ. So, let's start first with being mindful of our humble place. So, Paul writes in Romans 12 also that uh, we ought not to think of ourselves, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. And here he's saying similar things when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as being more significant than yourselves. So there's this, um, there's this episode or this anecdote that we get uh, when, uh, in the Gospels when James and John ask their mother to do the junior high thing for them. Hey, will you go to Jesus and ask Him a question that, that we really, really want to ask Him, but we're a little bit too insecure to go to Him ourselves? And so they put their mother up to it, and their mother says, hey, Jesus… You know, we all know that, that you're going to be exalted in your kingdom, and all eyes of the universe are going to, going to be on you. It's going to be bigger than a U2 concert. And um, can my sons, James and John, be sitting right there at your right and left hand when you're getting all the attention and all the glory? Can all eyes be on them while all eyes are on you? And it, it says that all of the other disciples were infuriated with James and John for putting their mom up to this. Why were they infuriated? Because they too wanted all eyes on them. They weren't being mindful of their humble place. But there is this smallness, isn't there, that, that haunts us on a regular basis. There is this insecurity that we carry with us about our place, about our position in the universe. And and it's true, isn't it, that we often are those who fight in order to create our own experience of glory. You know, Paul's terminology for this is vain conceit. It's a compound word uh, in the original Greek, and, and it is uh, a combination of, of two terms, kino, empty, doxa, glory, empty of glory. That's, that's our experience. And, and without thinking right, without 
mindfulness, being fully present with the truth of the gospel, that you're completely blameless in the sight of God because of Jesus, you're completely forgiven, you're completely loved in the sight of God because of what Jesus has done. Nothing can ever separate you from His love. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You are glorious by virtue of the fact that you are in Jesus Christ. When we are not mindful of this, when we are fully present somewhere else with some other way of thinking, when we are disjointed from the truths of the gospel, we will give ourselves to and build our lives on what, what Jordan Peterson in his, his latest book, Twelve Rules for Life, calls a life lie. Paul calls it a boast. What do we boast in? What do we hang our hat on? What do we look to to be our significance, to be able to get up and tell ourselves in the morning, I matter. I, I have something with which to justify my existence. We can go about this religiously. There are religious forms of vanity. You, you see a picture of it in Luke chapter 18, and, 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 and you see it in the description of Jesus' audience in the ninth verse of that chapter, where it says that Jesus is speaking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt, trusting in themselves that they're righteous, looking down on others with contempt. Um, you can look at it this way. There are, two, there are two ways that religious people read the Bible. Two ways that Bible readers can read the Bible. One is if I read my Bible and then on the basis of what I see in there, scrutinize you. That's what you call religious vanity. I am superior, you are inferior, I matter. On the basis of that. The other way to read the Bible is to read it, and then on the basis of what I see in there, scrutinize myself. That's what the Bible says is being mindful in the truest sense and being renewed by your mind, understanding your humble place in the universe. There's also, in addition to the religious form of vanity, a political form of vanity. Karl Marx, who founded communism, Have you ever heard this quote? I've used it once or twice before. Karl Marx said this, I am nothing, and I should be everything. Man, the poor, denuded creature, must repress his own smallness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, here we have Jesus who, it says, was and is everything. Though He was in very nature God, He is everything, and yet He makes Himself nothing. And here Karl Marx is saying, I am nothing, and I need to make myself everything. Quite literally, that's what he said. But when we do that, when we switch God's place in the universe and our place in the universe, and we try to occupy His throne and, and chase after our own glory, our own life lie, our own boast, what you get is something not unlike the fruit of communism. Communism, that movement in which people for years and years and decades of history have counted themselves more significant than others and, 
and by virtue of that, dehumanized others. And you get tyrants like Stalin and Mao and Castro and Pol Pot and, and, and so on, spanning for decades. That's what happens when you seek political glory, when it's about you instead of about the common good. And then there is what you could call the quest for vocational glory, which I think is maybe closer to home for a lot of us. Um, so let's think about Madonna for a minute. Over a hundred million records sold, very successful TV and film star. Uh, she has her own clothing line. Her, her career has spanned over the course of four decades, and she's still going strong in her 60s. She's won multiple ASCAP awards, multiple Golden Globes, and Grammys. And so she did this uh, uh, interview with Vanity Fair some time ago, and in that interview, she became very transparent, and she talked about how she has this iron will. Those are her words. I have an iron will, and she talked about how she worked tirelessly at, at all of these different creative, um, you know, vocations of hers in order to, her words, be somebody. She did it all, and I quote, to conquer this horrible feeling of inadequacy. This is Madonna, one of the most famous, one of the most accomplished artists of our time. And she says she lives every day with this horrible fear of being mediocre. So the answer to this, this smallness that haunts us, to this insecurity about our own place in the universe the Pharisee will say, deny your smallness and be self-righteous. Hang your hat on that. Marx will say, and his communist followers will say, repress your sense of inadequacy and smallness and dominate other people. Madonna would say, conquer that sense of inadequacy through hard work. The Bible says something altogether different and altogether liberating. Admit it. Just admit how small you are. You know, referring back to the psalm that, that Katie Cameron referred to just a few moments ago, the eighth psalm written by King David, when I consider the heavens, when I consider the cosmos, when I look at the stars, I think to myself, what is, what is, what is man, what is a human being that you would would even think of him or regard him. I, he's, he's confessing his own sense of smallness. You know, the atheist physicist Stephen Hawking said similar things when he said the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies, we are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. That's sort of his statement against religion. He's saying, wake up, people. Consider how small you are. And, and there's something to admit here. 
I mean, we, I think we would all agree we can't control the universe, but I think it gets really close to home when we realize we can't even control ourselves. We can't even fix us. We can't even conquer ourselves. Think about all these virtues that the Scripture, that today's Scripture calls us to. Affection, sympathy, unity, humility, thinking others and treating others more important than ourselves, prioritizing others' interests over our own, living our lives as servants. How are we doing? How are we doing with those basic virtues of gospel mindfulness? I've been a Christian for 27 years. I've been a minister for 22. Right now, I am living the dream life that I dreamed of 22 years ago when I got out of seminary. I am driving to church today. And this unexplainable anxiety just, just invades my gut, and it's still there. I'm actually speaking to you right now with this unexplainable anxiety in my gut, and I don't know why it's there. Not only this, I drive, I'm in my Jeep this morning driving to church scared, and I don't know of what. It's just this feeling of doom. And this feeling of inadequacy, that I'm not enough. Like, what the, like true Ecclesiastes moments, I guess. Because maybe I'm not enough. Maybe like Rich Mullins once sang, you know, we, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. Or not as strong as we would like to think that we are. You know, go to chapter 8 of, of, uh, of Little Women. You've got Amy and Joe, two sisters, and Amy, Amy gets really upset with Joe over something, and so she grabs uh, the little notebook like this that Joe has, that, that, that Joe has been writing the manuscript with her hand. They didn't have typewriters or computers. You couldn't save things. You, you wrote it down, so she's writing it down manually, the manuscript of a story that, she, that she's telling, um, you know, envisions publishing a book someday, and because Amy is upset with Joe, she she burns the manuscript. And Joe is infuriated. Amy, realizing what she does, comes and offers a sincere apology. Joe rejects the apology and treats Amy with contempt. And in a later scene, the mother comes to Joe and says, you have to forgive your sister. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You have to forgive your sister. And, and Joe turns her contempt away from her sister to herself and says, I know, mother, but there's this temper. It's always been there, and I've never been able to control it, and I don't think I ever will be able to, be, to control it. There's this helplessness of not being able to change even ourselves. Be mindful of your humble place. But then in comes the hope, being mindful of Christ's sometimes hidden power, but it's always there. It says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, there are various seasons in history where Jesus has been 
exalted and put on display as glorious. One is, of course, the resurrection and the, His ascension into power, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Another is this future that, that Philippians 2 is envisioning for us today. And then a third is all the way back to creation. It says in John chapter 1, in the very beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He's speaking of Jesus. The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him and for Him. And so, this universe that Stephen Hawking says completely dwarfs us and makes us completely insignificant because of how big it is and how small we are, God created it. Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh, made it all. He said, let there be, and there was, water, earth, sky, animals, plants, angels, human beings. So, let's go back to the eighth psalm again just for a second. I'll read you a little bit more of that psalm. O Lord, our Lord, David writes, how majestic, how grand and glorious is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, he's talking about the galaxies, the cosmos about, uh, about which Stephen Hawking, Hawking spoke. When I look at the heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You've set in place, what is man? Did you hear that? The work of your fingers. He didn't say the work of your biceps. He said the work of your fingers. He's talking about the fine motor skills of God. What, what kind of work do we do when, 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 when we call forth our fine motor skills? Little bitty work, like sewing up a tear in a garment or… or fastening a nut to a bolt, or jotting down a signature, or, or a letter, or a punctuation mark. We do little tiny things with our fingers, hammering a nail with our fingers. God uses His fingers to create the galaxies. What, imagine what it would be if God used His biceps. He's just using His fingers and this little insignificant sun, you know, what, what, what Hawking referred to as a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies, this sun, if it were to disappear, all life would cease to exist. The observable universe which God created with His fingers only the observable part, the fine motor skills of God, put into existence one billion trillion stars plus the others that we can't see. That's who we're dealing with. And yet, how does Jesus choose to demonstrate His own power and exaltation? By becoming small, by making Himself nothing. Being in very nature God, it says, He didn't consider or think of equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied Himself. And this word empties is, is actually the same Greek word. Uh, you know, earlier in the passage, it's talking about our vain conceit, our empty glory, our keno doxa, our empty glory. Here it says that, 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 that Jesus, it, it, it describes kenosis, 
Keno, emptying himself of what? Of demonstration. What we're talking about here is, is the most unbelievable act in the history of the universe of impulse control. He empties himself. He exercises his power, how? By not asserting it. By not asserting it, but by instead becoming obedient even to death on a cross. He's taunted by a thief, and to that very same thief, in just a few moments later, all it takes is just one little apology from the thief. And Jesus says, okay, I'm covering your entire history up to this point. I'm, it's covered. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. And then the soldiers who are not remorseful, are not apologetic, are not repentant in the slightest toward Jesus, spitting in His face. And as they're in the act of doing that, what does Jesus do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then those tiny little hands of those small little men use their fine motor skills to put nails in the hands of Jesus, thus immobilizing His fingers with which He created the stars and galaxies. Does that give you a little bit of a chill? Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler says this, true power is when you have every justification to kill your enemy, and you don't. Impulse control. Jesus Christ, with His fingers, could have squashed us like gnats. Instead, He makes Himself nothing and considers us to be more significant than Himself. So, be mindful of that, and in light of that, be mindful lastly, of your exalted place in Christ. Paul begins not with the imperatives, not with the what to do, but with the indicatives, who you are, what your identity is on the basis of whose you are. You are who you are because of whose you are, and you are in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, the implication here is His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In Christ, if it's true of Jesus, it's true of you. God loves you as much as He loves Jesus. Never a moment does He love you even just one itty-bitty bit less than He loves Jesus. He sees you as much as He sees Jesus. He knows you as deeply as He knows Jesus. He's for you just as much as He is for Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. So, the British artist Lord had her breakout hit several years ago, and the hit's, hit was called Royals, which is sort of a royal wedding song. Here's how she talks about things like royal weddings in those lyrics. We don't care. We're not caught up in your love affair, and we'll never be royals. It don't run in our blood. That kind of lux just ain't for us. We crave a different kind of buzz. But then she betrays her own words and speaks more honestly in another part of the song. On second thought, let me be your ruler. You can call me Queen Bee, and baby, I'll rule. Let me live that fantasy bigger than we ever dreamed. 
I'm in love with being queen. Isn't that why we all get up at 4 o'clock? I didn't. I DVR'd it. But isn't that why people get up at 4 in the morning to watch this wedding of a chivalrous, handsome prince pulling in an American divorcee from the outside and bringing her in? conferring on her a status that she did nothing to earn or deserve except that she looked pretty in his eyes, and he wanted her. Isn't that amazing when we start to imagine ourselves in that story? Because that's why we watch the wedding, right? I don't think it's voyeurism, really. I think, I think it's because there is something in us that knows that that kind of pomp and splendor is for us, too. And so, I watch and I see myself in Harry, and Patty watches and she sees herself in Megan, because in fact, it's not fantasy at all. In fact, the happily ever after story is not an escape from reality, it's a re-entry into the reality that we've been promised, because there is a royal, there is a prince of peace, and he's got the military outfit on, but he's also got medals there and scars and fingers that had been immobilized in a hole to prove it on each hand. He's got it all, and he won this battle to win his bride, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And this wedding that's promised to each and every person who's a member of the bride of Christ through faith in Christ, this wedding that, that, to which this table is, is merely a rehearsal dinner, but this, this wedding, this, this reception that we're all going to be part of as members of the bride of Christ will make the wedding between Harry and Meghan look more like something at the county courthouse late one Saturday morning with a justice of the peace. We will never not be royals. You know something else about the promised future? Revelation 21, it's all there. It does spotlight the glory of the groom, but it also spotlights the glory of the bride. John looks forward in history, and he sees a bride coming down out of heaven from God, beautifully dressed for her husband, Jesus. So today, here are the takeaways to prepare us for this rehearsal dinner that's before us now. We are so much less than we presume. Can we admit that? And tomorrow we, we will be so much more than we ever dreamed. Can we believe that? I pray so. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, teach us to be mindful, to both not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and also to marvel in the glory that You have promised us 
through participation in the Spirit, encouragement in Christ, comfort from His love. We are both nothing and everything. We are both small and magnificent. We are both finite and gloriously infinite. We are both aliens and strangers on the outside and so included that we're already referred to as daughters and sons adopted as well as the bride of Jesus Christ. Father, make us mindful of the hidden, sometimes hidden power of Christ who had every justification to kill and he didn't. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.